Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. The day I turned 10, my mother told me she had been a spy. Although she tells that story a bit differently now. I wouldn't have actually said that, darling. I only think the ones who run around outside are the ones that, anyway. You know, you say, oh, you, you didn't really do anything, but you had these little bits of trade craft, you know, how to tell a two-way mirror, um, you know, you had clothes that were reversible. <laughs> yes. You had stories yeah. about, you know, cameras, uh, yes, hidden cameras, in, you in had stories. Purses. I mean, that, that was the fun side, and you could, I mean, I was sent out, I had to do a stint with the technical people for a while, <laughs> and I was sent out with this hideous plastic handbag, which you wouldn't have ever chosen for yourself, with a camera in it. My name is John Daniel. My mum started working for New Zealand's Security Intelligence Service, the SIS, in the 1960s. We'd have uh, trial runs, like car chases and things like that. Yes, the adrenaline doesn't usually get up, but I must say, I can remember speeding along the waterfront, some man plastering his both feet to the floor, terrified I had to slow down. You were driving. Mm, yes. Well, you know, you had to be ready to you do to... anything. Mum left the SIS in 1971 when she was expecting me. By 1982, when I was 10, we were living in Karori, just the two of us after my parents divorced. Once I got my head around it, the excitement of finding out about my mother's time as a spy felt like ancient history in the way that kids think of their parents' lives before they arrived is just something that happened a long time ago. Life in suburban Wellington felt a long way from anything interesting. Ready to Roll was the highlight of my Saturday night. I read the Rothmans rugby yearbook cover to cover. And in the deep distance, but still on the edge of everyone's consciousness, lurked the prospect of nuclear war. If we are attacked by nuclear weapons, these are the warning sounds you must recognize. When you hear the attack warning, you and your family must take cover at once. But the following year, 1983, a man from Mum's old job moved in as he went through a marriage breakup. I'm going to call him Jim Stewart because that's how he was introduced to me at the beginning. It turned out that was a fake name, even though he had a stack of IDs to back it up, American Express, Passport and the rest. He had a fake name because he was a real spy. 
Mum and Jim never married, but over time he became my stepfather, and pretty soon things were getting interesting. Over the next sort of five or six years, he would go out on ops at night. You know, and he'd be blacked up, he'd be in his full, you know, gear. You know, it must have been a tense time, you must have felt. Well, I was always very pleased when he got home. I still don't know all the ins and outs of Jim's work at the SIS, but at least some of it involved sneaking into foreign embassies. What were the ramifications of being caught on foreign soil? That it wasn't always foreign soil. It wasn't always, no. Oh, gosh, no. No, no, not always. No. But the ramifications of getting caught in those situations, I mean, because the police were... Very tricky. The point about being caught in an embassy, technically foreign soil, according to the Vienna Convention, is that you just don't get caught. The ramifications, political, strategic, personal, are disastrous. But by 1986 our house was being used as a billet for people from MI6, Britain's external intelligence service, when they came out for joint operations with the SIS. I've been told one of those jobs involved breaking into the Czechoslovakian embassy and cracking a safe. My mum was there, watching as Jim and the men from MI6 got ready to go. I knew which one was the senior one in the group. And as they were all getting into cars outside our house, one one of them was shaking very badly. And I said, are you all right? And I turned round to the chap who was in charge of them. I said, this man's ill. And he just said, he's always like this before a job. So I shut him. And that was the Czech embassy? I can't be sure. Probably, because it was a quite a group of them. That job... A covert raid on the Czechoslovakian embassy was perhaps New Zealand's biggest intelligence operation of the Cold War. But I only found out how big when I asked Jim about it a few years before he died in 2005. It took place one night in suburban Wellington more than 30 years ago. It's never been revealed publicly until now. It was only in 2018, talking about it with a mate while playing pool, that I felt like it might be the right time to find out what really happened. That mate was RNZ's Guy Nespina. Yeah, you took a bit of convincing as I remember it, but I do remember saying, this is massive. This is, this is effectively the government knowingly committing a crime against another state. Mate, look, crime is, is just too loaded for this. I think when you look at the big picture, they weren't doing anything wrong at all. I mean, it's like winning the World Cup of espionage. Not sure the Czechs would have felt quite that way about it. Anyway, can we stand this up? Well, the thing is, we've got to remember how deeply siloed this whole area was, the whole world of intelligence. I mean, the people I personally knew who were in on it, uh, you know, have been dead for, for decades. Yeah, but there's always someone who knows. There'll be records, there'll be something. Yeah, but I don't know that they're going to tell us. We do not attract much attention internationally because we're not big and powerful. And sometimes we are in strategic places where we can find things out that are of value. Put it that way. The, the lead-up lead work was, yes, the sorts of things that you would expect a, uh, an intelligence service to do when it's trying to get close to, um, to intelligence officers and hard information. 
trying to steal other people's codes is the, the holy grail of intelligence because obviously the rewards are so great. We've been able to read the encrypted documents. From RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions, this is The Service. The Soviet Union was extremely active in New Zealand. A five-part podcast about New Zealand's SIS. All of us lived in the shadows all that time, you know, in the wilderness of mirrors. And its role in the Cold War. I do recall very much the heated times of the nuclear arms race. I'm John Daniel. And I'm Guy and Espiner. This is a story about espionage and global political strategy across those decades when the West lined up against Soviet Russia and the other Warsaw Pact countries. It's also a family story. It's about individual lives, secrets and trust. And the echoes from it still resonate right up to the present day. The New Zealand Security Intelligence Service is the loose equivalent of Britain's MI5 or America's FBI. It's a domestic intelligence agency, although they do have a presence elsewhere in the South Pacific, as well as here in New Zealand. Its headquarters are in Pipitea Street, just a few minutes' walk from Parliament. It's a pretty brutal-looking building, isn't it? (laughs) Gives you a feel of defensiveness. Strong, strategic, sort of... The windows are like medieval arrow slits. The SIS shares this building with the GCSB, the Government Communications Security Bureau, and other elements of the New Zealand intelligence community. We're here for a meeting to see what the SIS can tell us about that Czech embassy raid back in 1986. I was just looking back at that email they sent us, actually not even allowed to take our car keys in because of the receptor on the, on the car keys. So. so, fair enough, security is reasonably tight. Don't trust anyone. Do we even exactly know who's going to be in this meeting? No. Uh, well, yes. I think there's going to be a comms person from uh, from the service and possibly a lawyer. It's not the first time I've been here. About six months earlier, just after that pool hall conversation, I made contact with the service to talk about my plans for a story. They've asked that the details of that meeting remain off the record. What I can say is that I went in hoping for their blessing and ideally cooperation. Wasn't really the way it turned out. John Daniel and Guy Espiner. Yep. Oh, I want things to my feet, please. What's oh, that? Yeah, sure. I do. The New Zealand Security Intelligence Service was created in 1956, but to understand why, you have to go back to the end of the Second World War. The Western powers, led by the US and Britain, were closing in on Berlin. Together, these two mighty allies crushed the final German bid for victory and moved steadily to a meeting with their gallant Russian ally in the east. Berlin, citadel of Nazism, fell. A few months later, we saw the dawn of the nuclear age. A short time ago, 
an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Two nuclear bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Japan surrendered. On Sunday, September the 2nd, 1945, the most horrible war in history came to its complete and formal end. But within months of victory, there was division between the Allies. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest. Soon, East and West were locked in a struggle that was to last nearly 50 years. It was a Cold War in the sense that the arsenals of nuclear weapons, one side aimed at the other, were never actually used. And all our subjects, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from Moscow. Instead, there were propaganda and proxy wars across the globe. Leaders of the communist world meet in Warsaw to sign the treaty, which is their answer to NATO. The Warsaw Pact was established as a counterweight to the Western alliance. The joint forces of Russia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania and Albania. Everywhere there was espionage, a kind of front line that went right around the world. In the mid-1950s, New Zealand was reminded that isolation wasn't immunity. A statement made in the House of Representatives in Canberra by Prime Minister Robert Menzies gave first details of a Soviet spy ring in Australia. In 1954, a KGB colonel working in the Russian embassy in Canberra made contact with the Australian Security Intelligence Office and handed himself in. Vladimir Petrov, an official of the Russian embassy whose home was in Canberra, had told the full story. It was a bombshell in Australia and New Zealand too. A Royal Commission on Espionage in Australia was held and New Zealanders were accused of working for the Soviets. Two years later, New Zealand joined the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance with the US, the UK, Australia and Canada. And fears about Soviet infiltration led to New Zealand setting up the SIS in 1956. New Zealand was going to play its part in the Cold War. But three decades on, how much is the SIS willing to tell us about that? So we've just met with the SIS for an hour or so, laid out what we know about the raid on the Czech embassy, but it's hard to get a read on just how this is going to play out. I think that went pretty well, really. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought at one point, oh no, they're not going to give us anything. And they're paying pretty stone cold. But they- you say something, they'll be all scribbling it down. There's a lot of scribbling going on, but I got the sense that they... I got the sense that they realised what we were after quite late in the piece. I, I think they played quite a dead bat, really. I mean, it was all very... So good of you to come in. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. Yeah. We come at this from different angles. I'm surprised they're talking to us at all. Yeah, and I'm disappointed they're not welcoming us with open arms. (laughs) We haven't had a lot of help from the service putting this story together. No, but it's funny. Looking back, I was making that connection to the people working there now. Thinking of my mum and her work there and, and Jim, 
And it's kind of a mystery to me, the thoughts and the motivation behind this job where the things you do just can't be talked about and still can't be talked about now. I mean, and that's effectively the building mum worked in, right? I mean, it's not the building, but it's the same sort of thing, and you could see those sorts of people coming in and going out, right? It wasn't... Just normal people. Just normal people. Yeah. It wasn't as if it was James and Jemima Bond... No. ..coming in with a, you know, in a cat suit ready to kill people. No. It was... looked like any other government department, really. Yeah, pretty much, apart from the extra layer of security, that's pretty much it, isn't it? But that extra layer of security is just the skin on a culture of secrecy that starts with the idea of need to know. You only get to know a secret if you need to know it. Mum has told me a few stories about her work for the service in the past. When I asked her if she'd talked to Guyon, she seemed to be okay with it. But now she's a bit uncomfortable. There's a microphone right in front of her. What was your job at the SIS? Well, it was the, still the Cold War. Uh, all sorts of things I had to do. I had to check arrival cards from overseas flights, see who was coming in. Um, and naturally enough, there were parts of the building I wasn't able to go to. And there was always the need to know if you asked a question that you weren't able to be given an answer to. There were parts of the building that were just off limits. Naturally enough, in the registry office, there were parts that I hadn't, wasn't, um, didn't need access to. Somebody else above me, I mean, I was there and my boss was up there and in between there were two or three other people who <laughs> needed to know more than I did. The nature of the system means the default is to keep everything under wraps. There's an understandable need for secrecy when it comes to intelligence work, but I wonder, how long should you keep those secrets? If understanding history is important to us as a country, doesn't the public need to know what's been done on its behalf? And what were you looking for, primarily? I mean, who were the, who were the targets, if you like? No, you were, you were working on the Russia disk. I mean, it's not... It's yes, not I, a... was. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I mm was. -hmm. And um, occasionally we had... It's, it's 50 years on. Oh, so it is. Yeah. Um, yes, that was my job. I was in that section. And there were always um, couriers coming in. By couriers, mum means diplomatic couriers bringing diplomatic bags which can't be opened by the host nation. But those bags and the arrival cards she mentioned earlier could be more revealing than you might think. For example, one story from the Russian archives tells of a man sent to New Zealand by the Soviet Defence Ministry to conduct surveillance on the satellites the Soviets used to target their nuclear missiles. He'd have probably come in pretending to be a diplomat, but people like my mum would check that. So that's the kind of work she did? Yeah, this example comes from after her time, but... We do know about it now. Anyway, you cross-check a name and any identifying features with sister agencies and see if you get a hit. And it turns out that, say, Yuri Kropotkin isn't really interested in cultural outreach. He's actually a satellite tracking specialist. And you can do some informed guesswork about those diplomatic bags. Yes, host countries couldn't see inside the bags, but they could photograph the outside. 
see if they're bringing in something that might be, say, chunky technical hardware required for satellite work, rather than the usual caviar or vodka or whatever. Right, so the service could work out a Russian defence official was here, and given what the Five Eyes partners are telling them, he's probably got some high-tech equipment to look at the satellites used for nuclear missiles. Right, and then they can start to ask, why is he here? Can we get a look at that equipment? Maybe we could steal it. But it all starts with a research officer going through arrival cards and information about the diplomatic bag. So you had to be aware of a new face in Wellington. I'm quite sure everyone learnt in the end that there was an observation place opposite the embassy. They gave us good information which had to be noted down, comings and goings. So there was a there was a, a good place opposite the Russian embassy that you could um, monitor well, the comings they, and goings? There were people there who monitored. It was a known fact, really. But it's still, I mean, it's a trouble. It's still happening now, you mean? Well, the embassy hasn't moved. Of course. But everyone, but Mum, you're not telling the Russians anything they don't know. Don't worry. True. All of these things that we're talking about are <coughs> at least 30 and, and if not 50 years old. But, I mean, I understand that you're coy about some of this stuff, but... Um, well, it just goes against the grain, really, to make it out and about. And why is that? Well, you know, over the years I've told you hilarious things or odd things that happen, but, um, you know, certainly when I left to have him, you weren't allowed to visit, you were told not to visit Russia for 25 years. Not that I had that on my plan anyway. She's not kidding about secrecy. Mum's nearly 80, but she doesn't want her name used. And strictly speaking, she's right. After this interview, she quoted the Official Secrets Act to me, although that's now out of date. But it is an offence under the Intelligence and Security Act to disclose confidential information or reveal the identity of a current or former SIS officer, both punishable, at least theoretically, by a prison sentence. The lawyer we saw at the service asked if we'd be talking to Mum and didn't blink when I told her we would. I'm pretty sure they won't try to put an old lady who uses a mobility scooter in prison for talking about things she did for her country last century. At the same time, I'm nervous about how the story might be covered elsewhere when it comes out. We're trying to give a balanced account of historically significant events that would otherwise be buried in the files. But depending on where you're standing, it might look like a terrible betrayal of state secrets or flat-out propaganda for the SIS. More than anything, I'm nervous about how Mum will feel about it. She's a private person. I love her and I think she has every reason to be proud of what she and Jim did. But telling secrets can have unintended consequences. Anyway, if we have to call her anything, Mum's asked that we call her M, as a hat tip to Judy Dench's character, James Bond's boss. It's not deep cover, but it does show a certain flair. It's hard to know exactly how much she does know or what she's not telling. She's told me that she's tried to forget anything that was really sensitive. It's interesting that so many years later, you're still so worried about telling 
the world what happened. Is it? It doesn't surprise you, does it? It's a long time ago. Yes, but you still stick to, what, royalties or something? I suppose a lot of people, I suppose, would think it's a load of old rubbish, old hat or something, but that's the way I am, I suppose. So you still feel the the loyalty um, to the service? Yes. Well, it's your country, isn't it? That's the way I look at it. Always have, I suppose. That culture of secrecy and loyalty has a long tail. I've been in touch with a number of men I knew from Jim's time in the service. Some of them quite well, at least well enough to have a beer with or play squash or go hunting together. But most of them wouldn't talk. And if one or two did give me a little background, getting them on the record just didn't seem to be an option. Jim's children from his previous relationship were advised not to talk to us by the service. And we've respected that. Growing up with that secret, was that hard? Not so much with mum. Um, You know, like I say, her involvement was before I was born, so ancient history, really, as far as I was concerned. But Jim's story, yeah, that that was weird. You don't really know what it all means as a kid. If he works for the service, is he this kind of James Bond character? I was devastated that he didn't carry a gun to work. So... Yeah, as a school kid, that was a big secret. A big secret for me to hold on to, and I did struggle with it. When Jim moved in, I was about 10, 11, I think, and and I was told what he did, but sworn to secrecy. And they, they say a secret is something you tell one other person. Well, I did tell one other person. I couldn't help myself, and I was kind of bursting with it. And, and it was the wrong person. I shouldn't have told him. I had friends I could have trusted and this kid was a year or two older and, and frankly I was trying to impress him. So even though I made him swear not to tell anyone, and in a way he didn't I suppose, well, not, at least not as far as I know, but, but what he did do was make up a new nickname for me off the back of, of that information. And what was your nickname? He called me KGB. <laughs> and I was mortified. I learned to let it go after a while, but it took me a while. And I can remember early on saying something stupid like, you're breaking the Official Secrets Act, which of course just made it worse. That would have worked. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt really terrible about it. It was like I betrayed this trust put in me, which is what exactly what had happened. It's what I'd done. Um, when I was a kid, I had some posters in my room from, from the Second World War, British propaganda posters, I guess, about keeping secrets in wartime. Loose lips, sink ships, keep mum, she's not so dumb, that kind of thing. And I just look at those and think, oh, God, the shame. But look, it's not as if our home was focused on the etiquette of spycraft. I had a Debbie Harry poster too. (laughs) No shame in that. I had one of those too. (laughs) Classics at the time. So, look, this obviously wasn't a totally watertight secret. I remember playing rugby for the first 15 at school and that's, you know, kind of a social setting. Parents introduce themselves and everyone's like, oh, what do you do? And Jim must have mumbled something about being a civil servant and the first 15 coach, who was no one's fool, said, oh, you're a spy. <laughs> and from then on called him the spy. So that made me feel 
quite a lot better, actually. Yeah. At least that wasn't on me. That's done it. Mm. And look, of course, I told you, and, and to be honest, that that's probably why we're doing this series, why I agreed to it. I, I was kind of worried that if I didn't, you might have thought I'd be making the whole thing up. The men that I spoke to from the service, they did point me in the direction of someone they thought could help. We hadn't met because by the mid-1980s he had left the service, but when I contacted him, he sounded keen, which was a relief. How do you put together a story like this when even your own mother is cagey about telling you the facts? I was told to talk to him because he's already done quite a lot of talking, or at least writing. In 2004, he published a book called Spy about his time in the service and his integral role in the Such Affair. If you don't know about the Such Affair, hold tight. It's a great story. He's a senior civil servant right at the top of the government who was accused of spying for the KGB. And we'll get into that in our next episode. Right, yeah. This guy's name is Kit Bennett. That's his real name. His identity as an SIS officer was exposed by Brian Edwards on Radio Windy after the Such trial in 1975. The service weren't wrapped about the book, but he figured, what the hell, Cold War's over, it's part of New Zealand history, why not? It's difficult to know when when it finishes, you know, when is it no longer important to, to preserve the secrets of the Second World War, you know, um, and, and I'm not sure. Often it's on modus operandi, but then most of that you can guess, most of that you can pick up in novels and books and, and, and things, and if you read very carefully in Le Carre, you can see so much of, 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 of that sort of thing, and on some of the good television shows as well. Just a footnote here, spies love Le Carre, the ex-British intelligence officer turned author, real name David Cornwall. He wrote a bunch of spy novels like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which was made into a 1965 movie starring Richard Burton. We have to live without sympathy, don't we? We can't do that forever. One can't stay out of doors all the time. One needs to come in. In from the cold. In his stories, people rather than technology are the real key to understanding what happens. As Kip Bennett puts it, you can find a 50-cent piece in a cornfield with a satellite, but you can't find Osama bin Laden unless someone somehow tells you where he is. The other thing that gives Le Carre's books credibility in the eyes of the spies is the human element. Operations, even institutions, are often compromised because the complexity of an individual heart doesn't get factored in. Like an 11-year-old kid trying to impress someone by telling them his stepdad is a spy. There are people who are, who are still critical of, of the fact that I wrote that book 30 years on, um, and I accept that. Uh, I accept, I have to accept that. Uh, but I still believe that any, anything I've talked about has just been historical, and as you know, I've been very careful. Some of these, certainly some of the things that I did, and I'm not wishing to to blow them up as if they were particularly important, but there are things that I'll take to my grave because that's just appropriate. But things that I think are history, I think they should be. They should be released. Kit Bennett lives in Australia now. He lectures in business and aviation at Southern Cross University. He's not long retired from the Queensland Police. He was a bit of a late entrant, I guess, after his career in intelligence. I think it's fair to say that he's always enjoyed being pretty close to the action. He went into the service almost straight from school. It was a an interesting place, of course, 
as a, as a, as a man of 19, I entered with trepidation um, and excitement. It was an excitement you had to keep to yourself, though. The advice Kit Bennett's was given when he first joined the SIS back in 1971 was if your friends asked you where you worked, you told them you worked at the Justice Department. This wasn't a bad ruse, but it didn't always work. A friend of mine rang the Justice Department looking for me and asked me, and, and they said, no, there's no... Kit Bennett's that works here, and hang on a second. No, no, there's no Kit Bennett. But look, I tell you what, why don't you ring the Security Intelligence Service? Because they often say they work for us. So, it went, you know, it kind of felt a bit Maxwell smart about that point. There were restrictions on your private life, you know, the sorts of people that you could be friendly with and mix with, you, you know, because they could destroy your career. Lots of us have issues negotiating work-life balance, but this is next level. You never got paid, really, is what you should have got paid. But you wanted to go to work. With what I did, I just love doing it. So there's that side of it. But it is quite destructive on marriages and things like that. Sometimes the police have the same sort of problem, it's, but it is destructive. And, and when you work undercover, as I later did, it really, it really just destroys um, relationships. It really does. Kit worked alongside my stepfather, Jim Stewart. One of the things I really wanted to know from him was the kind of jobs Jim actually did. I can remember seeing Jim going out at night and he would be wired, you know, it was a very high stakes operation. I suppose, you know, we were not talking about any one operation in particular, but as you say, any anything involving an embassy or even any sort of um, sensitive area, mm. the danger, the, the, the downside of getting caught is massive. Oh, yeah. And and if and in terms of the stakes, any of those big operations would have to have been signed off by the Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the upside that you weigh against it must also have been very big. That's correct. And the, the, we're talking about uh, Jim Stewart here, and, and, and the kind of work that Jim did was really... Yeah, it was always it was high adrenaline stuff, um, lots of, of things like that, and and yes, the stakes were high, not just career-wise for him, but you know, the political ramifications for 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 the government and for the service were were huge, and um, so I'm not I'm not surprised that he was he was the term wired scares me a little bit, you know, I'm not, but I'm not surprised that he was um, really on edge before he went out, and that work would have been done at night. That sort of work was really... It's tough on everybody, but particularly tough on the people that were doing it, like Jim. You don't even have the um, sort of hero's welcome of a soldier or something. You uh, A lot is asked of you, and in the end, they don't necessarily give very much back. But it'd be nice sometimes for people like him in particular to, to, have, to have received something from, the, from a grateful government, you know, for the, for the huge... Um, not, not so much the risk, but the risks they took, but, but the huge sacrifices they made in their own lives, mm. which you saw firsthand. Mm. And yet, um, in Jim's case, he, he had been so key for a long time at working on um, 
electronic transistor. I mean, that was kind of he, yes. he, he was a TV repair man yes, to yes. begin with. Yes, and he'd come from uh, uh, he was a merchant radio merchant seaman. He was a radio R- radio operator. tech. And, and, yep. Yes, you know, he sort of almost fell into the service. Yes. I don't know Jim's full life story, just splashes really. He was born in Scotland just before the war, grew up in a town north of Glasgow. He'd tell me about going out with his grandfather at night and watching the bomber squadrons fly east towards their targets in Europe. He didn't conform exactly to Scottish stereotypes. He drank gin rather than whiskey, and if money was tight when he was a kid, he was generous to a fault. He taught me how to make an omelette, recorded Miami Vice when I was away and would lend me cigarettes without ever asking for them back. At Christmas and birthdays, he would ask me what I wanted rather than our family habit of trying to guess at a present. For a kid bored of Christmas books about cars, that was genius. Jim ran middle distance races at school and, I think for a while afterwards, he played bass guitar in a band in the 50s, joined the Merchant Navy as a radio operator in the 60s, then travelled all over the world washing up in New Zealand where he became a TV repairman to begin with. I don't know exactly how he got into the service. Anyway, in case you haven't guessed, Jim's specialty was listening devices, bugs, detecting them and planting them. His ability at the time was cutting edge. It was state-of-the-art. Now, certainly we would get a lot of help from our um, fraternal services, um, often with technical equipment and things like that, but it still all had to be, it, it still all had to be modified and used under the, you know, in this country, done by him. Mm. It was brilliant. He was, a, he was a lot of fun, and we used to go to operations together. Kit Bennett has a story about a motel that was favoured by the Soviets. Of course, the SIS wanted to know what was said in their room and we would tend to uh, mount a technical attack, which involved (laughs) drilling holes and all sorts of things. In fact, this hotel was so heavily used by the SIS and the Soviets that they would sometimes end up swapping rooms on different visits. This time the Soviet would be in in, in the room that we had previously and, and we'd be in the room that he had previously. So you'd have to reverse the technology, so to speak. It's so, many of those things were so funny. There was so much drilling that Kit Bennett says the whole building was basically turned to Swiss cheese. I reckon if you belted it in the corner with an 18-pound sledgehammer, the whole show would collapse in a pile of dust. Sometimes Jim's efforts to hide recording devices required some serious construction work. I do remember one occasion where, where the team brought the whole ceiling down in an office because all these ceilings are suspended and they brought the ceiling down in the middle of the night and they had to get it all cleaned up before the morning, before that office was occupied again. The floor and the desk was covered in a white dust, there were all these broken panels and, and it was done. Absolutely spotless in the morning, no one knew. So, yeah, they did some amazing work and Jim was very much involved in that and it, his heart would have been going. So Jim works at the sharp end, right? This is field work. Yeah, operations, I think they were called. They, they had a front company in Wellington, Malacca Records, working out of the industrial zone off the Hut Road, full of unusual tools, technical equipment, electronic devices, 
next to what's now a tile depot, actually, I think. There were a couple of linguists who'd be in there as well, transcribing by hand, would have been picked up by the bugs. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, sometimes we don't even get great sound, do we? And we're working uh, 21st century gear, shoving mics right in people's faces. So with bugs, it's, it's a different game, isn't it? Oh, mate, it can't be anywhere too obvious. People are shouting into the next room. You can't hear the reply. Things get shuffled around on a desk. The plumbing's noisy. Mm. And, and look, then again, from Jim's point of view, while the equipment might have been state-of-the-art then, then exactly, <laughs> 1980s, wasn't anything like what we see today. I mean, mm. if you put an electronic listening device into a target, you can't run it off the mains. It has to have a battery. You have to change that battery every so often. And, and to escape detection, these things have to be tiny. So they have to go back in, take it apart, change the battery and fit it in again, which is pretty hair-raising just to change a battery. Mm. And what kind of operations are we talking about here? What were they actually doing? Who were the targets? Well, that brings us back to the Czechoslovakian embassy, doesn't it? That's really the only one I know about for sure. It's the only one I specifically knew enough to ask about. Let's go back to that story then. This is, what, 1985, 1986? And this is around the time that... We had Albie come out from MI6. Yes, I can't remember. You're right. And others, of course, yes. Albie, I'm guessing that wasn't his real name, but it was how he was introduced to me, stayed in the spare bedroom. Hang on. You had a guy from MI6 stay in the spare bedroom? Yep. Why? I don't know. Budget constraints, maybe? <laughs> The fact that mum was ex-SIS would have meant that it was considered safe. And Albie, tell me about him. Yeah, he was the only my six officer I met, and to my ear, he sounded like a cockney. He wasn't posh. Do you know what he did? Well, obviously he wasn't going to tell me, and I didn't ask. But afterwards, Jim told me his father had been a safe cracker. So as mum puts it, he didn't have to be a genius to work out what his role was. The way I remember him is looking a bit like Peter Blake... Shaggy blonde hair with an energetic moustache and a twinkle in his eye. Enjoyed a laugh. We had dinner together one night, and when I told him we played rugby at school, he said, Oh, I didn't realise you played rugby in New Zealand. I almost choked on my food. <laughs> and you asked your mum a bit more about this. How did all that come about? What, what's, what can you tell us about that? I can't tell you any great detail, because I really can't remember it. I mean would come home and say we've got uh, so-and-so or a couple of chaps or whatever coming out. Um, one of them's going to stay with us. Is that OK? Um, but that is funny, though, isn't it? I mean, I would come home as a 13 or 14-year-old or whatever, coming back from boarding school to find that there's a guy from MI6 in the spare bedroom <laughs> and to be thinking of it as normal. It never occurred to me to question it, quite frankly. So let's just have a quick look at MI6. This is the agency that James Bond works for, right? Yeah, they work out of what is quite a famous building in London, on the River Thames. It's been blown up at least once in the movies. (laughs) Rory Cormack knows all about this stuff. He's a professor of international relations, specialising in secret intelligence and covert action. He's written a book called Disrupt and Deny. It's about MI6's role in the secret pursuit of British foreign policy. 
MI6, or more formally known as the Secret Intelligence Service, is Britain's overseas intelligence service. Its role is to covertly gather intelligence from all around the world, mostly using human sources, with the aim of informing British foreign policy, countering terrorism, disrupting foreign threats. They also do the other tasks, as their, uh, the British legislation puts it, which involves influencing events or what we might call covert action. So the, 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 the majority of what they do, though, is, uh, is the intelligence gathering side of things. How common would it be for MI6 to come over to the other side of the world and help its sister organisation, uh, the SIS, out in an operation? There would have been uh, close cooperation between um, MI6 and its um, close closest allied intelligence organisations, particularly in areas where MI6 has more experience. Um, MI6 kind of traded on the the idea that it was. Um, and still is very, very good at what it does, and it's quite a prestige intelligence service. We'll hear more about MI6 from Rory Cormack in later episodes, but basically they're kind of the Rolls-Royce of spy agencies, and in 1986 they're out here in Wellington on a job. And what were they there for? They'd been sent out to work with their New Zealand counterparts. Mm. Well, the Czech Embassy operation is a big one, um, well, and so big that you were given the opportunity afterwards to choose your own gift. Oh, I'd forgotten that. It was such a surprise. I had no idea. Really taken by surprise. We'd like to send you out something. And it was it was the time when um, cutlery started being made with coloured handles, which I thought was quite fun. So we opted for some of those, really. There wasn't a great choice there here in those days. And uh, we got a heck of a lot, actually, didn't we? We still use that cutlery, have done for more than 30 years. At the time, I was told the cutlery was because the job had gone so well. But I knew that I wasn't allowed to know, didn't need to know, what the job actually was. I would guess what they did at the Czech Embassy was a career highlight for him. But it's not the kind of thing you can put on a CV. And his work in intelligence didn't go on forever. Like a lot of institutions, loyalty to the service seems to go only one way. Kip Bennett knows this as well as anyone and saw how it applied to Jim. His expertise in transistors was such, and the listening devices, yes. was such that he, he, you know, kind of reigned over that for sort of a 15, 20-year period, mm. but then his knowledge became obsolete. Everything went digital. Yes. And by the time he was in his mid-50s, uh, he was kind of put out to pasture. He wasn't, you mm. know, they didn't put much of an effort into um, converting him into something else. And that's what happened to, to many of those guys, and it's very sad. And, and he, can, he, he took his stories with him, and many of them he could, unlike the ones that I can tell, he, couldn't, he could never tell for a number of reasons. By the mid-1990s, the Cold War was over and the service was in a strange kind of limbo, with no obvious enemy and no obvious role. I've never known the exact details of how it played out, but after more than 20 years in the service, Jim, in his late 50s, got the shove. 
He took up work as an odd job man, fixing this and that for people he knew, helping out a mate with a hunting franchise. And maybe there's a gap between loyalty to your country and loyalty to a place that pushes you out when they figure you've reached your sell-by date. Because late one night, years later, sometime in the early 2000s, I'd been having a drink with Jim at home. As I remember it, it was just as he'd got up to go to bed that I asked him what the operation had been that brought out all those guys from Britain and, a few months later, the cutlery. He stood there for a second. Maybe, like Kip Bennett's, he figured the Cold War was over and he could tell a story. And let's face it, he almost certainly figured it wouldn't go any further than me. Whatever his thinking was, we didn't discuss the protocol or need to know. He just told me. It was the Czech Embassy in Wadestown. What were they after? The codes used by the Warsaw Pact countries. Did they get them? Yeah. We've spent the last few months trying to confirm this story. We've spoken to all kinds of people. And over the next few episodes, we're going to try to find out what really happened. The light was red, and we were coming around the corner a little higher up, and the light was seriously red. And he just cruised, Pertsev was driving, and he just cruised straight through and onto Lampton Key, through this red light. No, didn't slow, it just slowed to make sure there was no traffic, and through he went. Now, what he was looking for was to see if anyone was going to follow him. So we didn't fall into that trap. Uh, now, when that happened, we knew that that was counter-surveillance. There's no other reason for it. You know, they, these guys could drive. There's no other reason an operational driver would go through a red light. That's next time on The Service. The Service is made by RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions with support from New Zealand On Air. It's hosted and produced by Guy Espiner and me, John Daniel, with additional reporting by Robert Breston. Our sound engineers are Adrian Holai and Rangi Powak. Our producer is William Ray. Thanks to Ngā for the archival audio and to Anthony Tonnen for the original music throughout the series. The executive producers for RNZ are Tim Watkin and Veronica Schmidt. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.